You're listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast presented by Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. On this program, we invite poets from all over the world to join us for a one-on-one conversation about their poetry, their craft, and what poetry means to them. From how poetry played out in childhood to its current practice, it's all about the poet and the poem and what's really happening behind the words. Here in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we produce this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Wordsmith. I'm Kelly Van Nelson and today I'm chatting with Jeff Cottrell, a journalist, fiction writer and performance poet based in Toronto, Canada. His performance style is influenced by slam conventions, but subverts them with wit, ironic humour and a satirical tone. He has headlined in countless literary series throughout Canada, the UK and the US over the past 20 years. Jeff has authored four chapbooks and recorded three CDs, and he is currently working on his seventh or maybe its eighth attempt at a first novel. This man comes with off-the-wall poetic humour. Please welcome Jeff Cottrell. Thank you very much, Kelly. I hope you're having a good uh, evening for you, morning for me. That's it, yes. And you're dialing in from Toronto and I'm here in Sydney today, so um, many time zones at the moment, but good to have you on the show. I'm going to dive straight in with an opening question, and I'm going to take you right back to the very beginning. In what role did poetry sort of play in your childhood? Where where did the sort of poetry love that you have stem from? Interesting. Uh, Well, when I was a kid, I read a lot of uh, fiction and some poetry, obviously. And of course, I was a big Roald Dahl fan when I was a kid. And of course, you know, his books had a lot of poetry like the Oompa Loompa poetry in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So it was just, I guess, a love of reading in general and that begat a love of writing. I started writing my own poems and stories, you know, when I was in grade school. Sometimes they were just complete rip-offs of uh, books I'd read or like comedy sketches on TV. But I mean, that's a start, right? I just reworked them into my own stories. Um, I started to get uh, really serious about writing both fiction and poetry when I was, you know, late high school and definitely in university. And uh, what I really wanted to be was a novelist. And I haven't given up that dream yet. I have, uh, I'm making revisions to a novel right now that uh, hopefully will get a publisher at some point. But spoken word actually was something I kind of stumbled into because I was writing a lot of fiction when I was in my early mid twenties, going to open mics in Toronto. And I saw people were doing poetry, but they were doing poetry differently from what I'd expected because, you know, they'd be, there were people uh, like Wakefield Brewster, Monica Kubler. uh, There was a popular series called Bite, which had a lot of really off the wall stuff, like you described me. And uh, yeah, and I saw that and I kind of went, hey, I want to do that, but I want to do it my way. So I kind of developed my own style, which was part poetry, part comedy, some stand-up influence, uh, once in a while some big theatrical influence, which I can't really do on Zoom. But, you know, once in a while I'd even bring a prop or, you know, a wig or something, like I'd create a character about whatever the poem or the monologue was about. 
And yeah, that kind of caught on. And over the years, I started going international. I've done, I think, eight tours or mini tours in the UK now. I've performed at parts of the US. I've done a couple of tours on the West and East Coast and uh, had a lot of fun with that. The past uh, couple of years, I've been focusing almost exclusively on fiction, which is why I don't have a lot of new poetry or spoken word material. But uh, that the performance part of that has really jumped back um, with uh, with the Zoom thing and with the pandemic because there's such a such a great opportunity to reach Australia and the UK and the US and other parts of Europe. So that's been very convenient. Tell me a bit about the Zoom scene because that's where we met and I've seen you on a few of the sort of Zoom yeah. poetry open mics around the world. So tell me how you've seen that sort of evolve. Oh, it's grown into an, a very interesting community because it's not uh, exclusively um, limited to one place in each thing. Like, uh, I see the same people from uh, all over the world, especially the UK, show up in events, you know, in different places. Okay, for example, there's a, a popular scene in Nashville, it's grown popular on Zoom, called Poetry in the Brew. It happens every Saturday night. And... Uh, uh, it started off mainly Nashville people and a few British people started trickling in. And now I think the majority of it are Brits. <laughs> it's like it's become so popular that, uh, you know, the uh, British and Irish people who show up, they've dubbed themselves the Midnight Poets. So uh, that's become kind of our, our recurring term, the Midnight Poets are the people, because it starts at six o'clock in Nashville, it's midnight in the UK. These, all these communities, they come together you know, so it's, it's turning into one big global community and you meet new people in Australia and, and Europe and whatever. And it, yeah, it becomes totally international. Do you think the scene has always been there or do you think we've discovered it because of Zoom and the smaller world now because of technology or has the poetry scene always been out there? I think to a small degree, it's always been there because when Poets, especially slam poets, when they become famous, you know, they travel. You know, for example, I'm sure you've heard of Shane Coyzan. He's been our big star in Canada for like, you know, more than a, well more than a decade. And of course, he's not just big in Canada, he's big in the UK. He's done, I think he's done gigs in London to like hundreds of people, which is something that most of us can only dream of or daydream of. And, you know, I've heard of a lot of uh, poets, like a lot of big slam poets, in the US, you know, um, Taylor Malley or, or, you know, other guys like that, uh, Mark Smith and people like that. Of course, the, the UK scene, I've gotten to know people there from physically traveling there. And that's kind of how I stumbled into the Zoom thing too, because the first Zoom poetry gig I went to was um, WordSpace just outside of Leeds, where I gigged in real life back in 2018. So I went there and then I started discovering other things like this on uh, Facebook and said, okay, I can do lots of these UK uh, gigs and some US ones. And then apparently other people caught on to that because I'm seeing them everywhere too. Yeah, there's definitely a community there. You see the same faces, which is actually lovely. It's always a very positive experience. You know, there's not the, there's, I don't find the snobbery that I've mm. found in some real life series for the elitism so much. Like we're all in, it's like we're all in this pandemic together and we're just coming together to share our poetry. Forget criticism for now, forget competition for now. We're just going to share our poetry and have fun. That's kind of what it's become. 
So you definitely have fun with your poems. I've seen you do some with uh, amazing humor in there. Do you have a, a good example of something you can share with us that's got that humor that I think is your trademark? What this is, is a, an alternative to a traditional love poetry. I find nowadays it's, um, it's hard to write a sincere love poem without it ending in a uh, stocking charge. So what I did was I wrote a poem about just liking something. This is called Like Poem. It's a safer alternative. <clears throat> Some writers say words can't express their love. Well, I don't love you. I merely like you. And surely words are good enough for that. I like you. You're kind of neat to hang out with, but only in small doses, not a lot. You're a swell opponent for a game of Risk or Clue or Cards Against Humanity. I'd watch a movie with you, nothing great, not Casablanca or The Seventh Seal, but maybe that last Hobbit film, let's say. I'd never have sex with you. Nor would I go on a long trip with you because I get quite sick of you after a day or two, but we know it would never come to that. Shall I compare thee to a plate of macaroni and cheese? I like mac and cheese, it's a nice lunch snack. It'll do when you just don't have time to bake. If you eat too much, you may get indigestion or dysentery or maybe even worms. That's more or less how I feel about you. How do I like thee? Let me count the ways. One, two, three. Yeah, two, that, that sounds about right, two. Like me mildly, like me bland. Think I'm a-okay. Say hello and shake my hand and stay six feet away. Oh, my like is not a red, red rose, but more a short, stubby dandelion, which gets chopped in the mower on a Saturday morning. Oh, my like is like a melody, but not one by Mozart or Tchaikovsky. More like a 1980s pop hit. Catchy and sweet, yet vastly disposable, like something by Mr. Mister or Paul Young or Level 42 or DeBarge or Wang Chung. What, you don't remember them? Exactly. When a man likes a person, things still sort of carry on. He might bum a smoke or maybe lend five bucks to you. If you're bad, he'll tend to notice, and then he'll stop liking you, turn his back on you, and delete you from social media. Love means never having to say you're sorry, but like means never having to say I love you. Roses are red, violets are blue. AstroTurf is a worthy practical substitute for the real thing, and so are you. Now, actually, I, I don't like AstroTurf. And come to think of it, I don't like you. No, you're annoying and you smell bad too. Go away. And that was like poem. I love that. And definitely, I, I actually haven't heard you do that one. It must be the first then. Yeah, that's it. it. I can definitely hear, though, that you have huge influence by slam conventions and this sort of satire that is in your work that's just brilliant i haven't you've got a really unique style when when we hear your work we just know it's you um 
What, what makes yeah. you write a piece? Where do you get your inspiration from when you write something like that? Where do, where do the triggers come from that make you put pen to paper? Or do you not put pen to paper? Yeah. Does it form in your head first? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's a bit form in my head first, actually, believe it or not. And instead of pen to paper, I typically write on the uh, computer, on the word processor. Uh, I've been used to doing that for years. I mean, I do have notepads and I do occasional local fiction writing workshops. And I use the notepads for that. But uh, as far as ideas, yeah, they come from all over the place. The one I just uh, performed for you, that just came to me, that came to me five years ago. Um, I was doing a gig in uh, Hay on Wye in Wales. And uh, I just remember I was, after the show, I was bantering, or maybe it was during the break, I was bantering with some of the other poets and audience. and. I can't remember how it came up, but I got the idea, like, instead of a love poem, just write about liking somebody. And, you know, it, it, it can be a way to satirize the whole banality of, like, well, I like you, but I don't like you like you. You know, and, and I just, why not take lines from love poems and make them really um, um, banal things? Like, and so that's, that's one idea. I've, I've gotten a lot of great ideas from the UK, actually. Like, just when I'm touring and, you know, I, got a, I have a Dickens parody um, that came from, I went on a Dickens walking tour. And um, I, I remember the tour guide talked about how uh, when he was writing The Old Curiosity Shop, uh, he would get all these letters from fans saying, don't kill off Little Nell, don't kill off Little Nell. And I thought, did anybody ever write one saying, yeah, kill off Little Nell? I thought, I, I want to read that poem, and I'm going to have to write that poem so I can read it. So sometimes that's, that's where my ideas come from. Like, nobody's done this idea yet. I want to read this poem because it's different. So uh, I want to write that. Otherwise, sometimes it's just things that make me angry or things that make me insecure. And uh, a lot of great humor comes from that. A lot of great humor and satire comes from those negative emotions. And I, I find it frustrating when I've gone to like improv workshops or comedy workshops or whatever, and they say, oh, let's not get too negative. No, we don't want a negative atmosphere. It's like, screw that, you know, make it negative. That's where the best satire comes from. It's definitely gone to a new level. Did, did you get to a point where you realized I'm an actual poet and I can really get a career in this or really sort of get big momentum out of uh, what, you, what you're doing. Was there sort of a, a, I'm still a, not there yet actually, because I still have to have a day job. And when I go on tours in like, you know, the UK or the, the or I do gigs in the US, whatever, I'm still paying the plane fare. Sometimes I have to stay in hostels or whatever. Once in a, once in a while I get lucky and get paid really well at a gig. Like in the UK, I've been paid really well at some of those gigs too. But uh, no, I've never really felt like I have a career because I still have to have a day job. And uh, I don't know, I still have these little pipe dreams about if I publish the novel I've been working on, you know, and it catches on and makes just enough money that I don't have to have a day job. Or I can get a day job that I, you know, I actually like a lot, you know. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah. I've definitely seen you do pieces with sort of pop culture and all of these modern ideas in there. Do you, do you have another piece that sort of you could share with us that uh, that's maybe got some of that influence in the modern day? Modern day. Let me see. Um, well, if we're going to call the, uh, we're going to do the internet. Actually, yeah, I'll do this one, actually. This one I haven't performed. Well, I've only performed it once on Zoom. I, I don't perform it often, but because uh, it's about kind of a controversial topic. The poem's called Online Public Shamer, 
and it's uh, kind of about cancel culture. Oops, not cancel culture, I mean accountability. Because I, I mentioned, you know, public shaming or cancel culture to people say, no, Jeff, it's about accountability. It's about privileged people being made accountable for their bad actions. And I can see where sometimes it's about that, but sometimes, you know, it's not just the powerful and privileged who are targets. And that's why I wrote this poem, like five years before cancel culture became this, you know, controversial uh, buzz phrase. So here's online public shamer. Yo, yo, yo. I'm a badass, dangerous mofo. If you say the wrong thing, you'll be feeling my sting. I'll mess you up good. Don't deny that I would. I can do it without even leaving my hood. Sure, I'm only five foot one and 18 years young and not too well hung, but I can still destroy you, chum. I'm no gangster or cop or even a dope first dropper. I don't need weapons or fists or kung fu technique. What use are these for a card-carrying internet geek? All I need is a high-speed web connection, a laptop, a cause, and no sense of self-reflection. Because I'm an online public shamer. I'm a privileged class blamer. I fight injustice, not with action, but with Twitter's hashtags and self-righteous satisfaction. There was a neighborhood massage therapist who got me very, 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 very pissed when he posted on Facebook that college political correctness was like a witch hunt. Well, I took offense to that. I deemed it misogynistic. Because if you can take a look through history statistics, you'll find that no male was ever killed in a witch hunt. Except John Proctor and Giles Corey and George Burroughs, George Jacobs, John Willard, Samuel Wardwell, Urbain Grandier, Bertrand Guillardot, Louis Debras, Johannes Junius, Jon Rogvaldson. But to hell with research and facts. It was time for me to grind my activist axe. I put out the word this guy hated all females through long Facebook notes and prioritized emails. I attributed sexist, hateful words of all kinds, even hinted his massage technique crossed a few lines. It spread far and wide from the mountains to the east side, and then came the fallout from the callout. His massage therapy business started dying, like that of the dentist who shot that lion. Okay, that's a bit of a dated reference from five years ago. It threw his whole family into poverty and disgrace with nowhere in decent society to show his face. And then he killed himself. But, but what can you do? Not much. Turned out he suffered from like depression or some such. How was I to know? And who was I to care? When you're hopped up on moral reform, honey, all is fair. Cause I'm an online public shamer. I'm a microaggression tamer. That's how I think society's ills should be mended. Let's get offended just for the sake of getting offended. My uncle had an ex by the name of Justine, and on baseball trivia, she was mighty keen. There was one time she tweeted, just for some kicks, my favorite 1980s Toronto Blue Jays are Kelly Gruber and Rance Mullinix. Did you catch that? Favorite 80s Blue Jays are Kelly Gruber and Rance Mullinix? Blue Jays are Kelly Gruber? Are Kelly? Man, I was disgusted. I declared her ass busted. I told all the followers of my Twitter dispersions that Justine condoned all of R. Kelly's crimes and perversions. Sure, that wasn't what she meant, but to hell with truth and reason. I declared it mob justice season. It was time to get mean. I launched the hashtag, cancel Justine. I spread it round the world more quickly than bring back our girls, and then came the fallout from the callout. First, every friend called the relationship with her to an end. 
end. Then came her family's turn to disown her. Even her fiance could no longer get a boner. And then she was an involuntary loner. And then her job fired her and no one would hire her. Not long after that, she got kicked out of her flat, had to move to a basement full of roaches and rats. And then she killed herself. But what can I say? She should have kept quiet if she wanted to live another day. Cause I'm an online public shamer. I'll divorce you from peace of mind like Kramer versus Kramer. I'm an online public shamer. I fight hate by spreading more hate. I fight lies by spreading different lies. And the only thing that tempers my mean-spirited glee is when I wonder, wait, what if they start coming after me. So that was online public shamer. So good. How, how do you take a piece of work from the written page or from your head and get it into such a slick sort of performance with all of that energy? I did say you were high energy. What's your sort of artistic process to get a spoken word piece out there to that level? Okay, well, uh, first I get the idea. Don't know whether it's a good or a bad idea yet, but I get the idea. Sometimes if I don't have a pad or word processor in front of me, I'll like start writing it in my head, you know, as I walk to the grocery store or whatever. As soon as I get a chance and I'm in an inspirational mood, start writing it, you know. And the funny thing is like, you know, I, I get accused of writing for performance sometimes, but actually almost everything I write is on the page first. It's meant for the page first. And uh, I do it at open mics and depending on the reaction, if there's a dramatic potential to it. I adapt it to performance. I start, you know, you know, intonating it certain ways. And uh, sometimes if I think it's real, really big dramatic potential, that's when I memorize it and I'll even block it out like a theater piece. And uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on the individual piece, but I see, I, I get the, the energy from audiences. Well, this can be adapted to a performance and, and this should probably stay on the page. And this one probably never read again. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. depends on the thing. So first and foremost, you're a writer. It's getting there on the page. And, and you're right. Tell me about the book you're working on. Okay. So yeah, that's uh, interesting because did the online public shamer and the book is kind of, I guess that's kind of the seed of the book. The book is, it's called Hate Story. And uh, I've done a few drafts of it. I'm still making revisions to it and hoping to get too close to a final draft soon. It has to do with internet shaming and so-called cancel culture and the potentially fatal consequences of that. Yeah, so it's, it's a very, it's, it doesn't sound like a comedy, but it is a, a very dark comedy with serious undertones. And uh, it hits on some controversial issues, you know, that uh, make me wonder, will somebody publish this? Well, I, I hope I don't have to self-publish it, even though I know that self-publishing, there's not as big a stigma as there used to be, but, uh, you know, it does, it does hit some controversial issues, which are very timely, and I hope that's a benefit, but it hits them in a way that some people may not agree with, and uh, you, you never know. It could be a subjective thing. I'm sure knowing your work, the book will make it onto the shelf at just the right moment for you. Um, with, with your work, do you tend to blend pieces of truth, your purest truths and things that you see or things that happen, or... Is it sort of your murkiest fiction and imagination that's playing out, is, or is it both? Well, that's uh, it, it, I say it's both, and you've kind of reminded me of something. I think, I think Francois Truffaut said it, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. I think Francois Truffaut said uh, that um, 
every every work of art, every really good work of art is autobiographical in some way, or he could have been quoting someone else. I, I don't know. But um, a lot of my stuff begins with a kind of truth, either a real incident that happened or an emotional truth. And then I start from there and then, then the exaggeration comes and that's where it becomes satirical. And um, yeah, and some people, I find very few poets do that. I mean, relatively few. I mean, the UK has a lot of great humorous and satirical poets, but I'm talking in general overall, I find relatively few humorous and satirical poets. And sometimes it's misunderstood. It's like, Jeff, you know, that's not how it, people aren't like that. You know, I even get that with my fiction sometimes, you know, people aren't like that, Jeff. And I, and I, under, under, I, I think to myself, do you understand how satire works? Exaggeration and sometimes even straw men are a big part of satire because even though you're exaggerating the truth, there's a strong emotional truth, a bigger truth you're going for. And sometimes that can only be seen with exaggeration. So yeah, I mean, you start with the real emotion or the real uh, negative incident or whatever, and you exaggerate and use a flight of fancy to get at a bigger truth. That's the beauty of writing and I love your satire and the humor that comes with it. So um, can you give us another piece? I'd like to hear another piece. Absolutely. Okay. Um, here's one uh, you heard me do earlier tonight, actually, at, uh, at uh, the, um, the reading in Canberra. Um, here's an ode to the moon. Um, now, as we all know, uh, for centuries, ever since the ancients, the dawn of poetry, through the Renaissance and the Romantics up to today, people have always written poetry about the moon and to the moon, often romanticized verse about the moon, mythologizing it. And so this is my attempt to join that immortal tradition, an ode to the moon. Fuck you, moon! Seriously, go bugger yourself, crater face. You think you're so cool and all with all your moon rocks? Dick. Oh, look at me. I'm the moon. I make people turn into werewolves. I make people go crazy when I turn full. I use my gravitational pull to cause tidal waves. Frank Sinatra sang songs about me. Michael Jackson did a dance named after me. I run circles around your crappy little planet. Literally, I'm the moon, baby, and you ain't never setting foot on me, sucker. Yeah, well, go suck on a, on a sucking piece of something, sucko. Stupid moon. How many astronauts have visited you lately, huh? How many, you pockmarked bastard? Been a while, hasn't it? As in a 47-year while. Why don't the astronauts like you anymore, moon? What did you do to creep them out? Did you say something to offend them? Did they catch you doing it with their significant others? Why doesn't NASA ever call anymore, Moon? Maybe it's because you're, I don't know, a big jerk? You're not really made of cheese, but you are cheesy. Remember when Georges Melier made that movie in which that spaceship hit you in the eye? Well, he should have used a bigger spaceship, one that would have wiped out your whole dumb, stupid face, or he could have sent up a nuclear bomb and blown you into a million billion moon bits. Except they, they didn't have nuclear energy back in 1902. Okay, scratch that one. Hey, moon, you know the difference between you and your mom? There's only one man in the moon. Stop peeking in my window every night, you pervert. Somebody ought to moon you, moon, you shiny pie-faced wanker. You think you're timeless, 
but you're just a phase. Percy Shelley once wrote about you. Art thou pale for weariness of climbing heaven and gazing on the earth, wandering companionless among the stars that have a different birth? Yeah, hear that, Moon? Companionless, because who'd be your companion, you lunar loser? It's only a paper, Moon. See, Moon, you're just paper. Well, scissors cuts your paper, and I've got scissors. Hard, quality metal scissors made out of the rock of the earth. Wait, okay, I, I know they say paper covers rock, but, but that's bullshit. Rock is strong and crushes paper too. Yeah, stupid moon. You know that Jupiter moon, Io? I hear Io's got more than 400 working volcanoes. Where are your volcanoes, Moon? I hear you used to have some pretty good ones back in the day, but now you've got an old Moon, and your volcanoes have dried up into dark Maria, and there ain't no giant cosmic Viagra out there to bring them back. No, sir. You're a jerk, Moon. A complete knee-biter. I'm gonna send you to the moon, moon. You sun-reflecting, tide-causing, total-eclipsing, poet-inspiring, who-drumming, crater-hoarding, river-widening, flying bicycle backdrop scenery-supplying, monolith-hiding, son-of-a-fucking-fuck-face-fuck-headed fucker. Think about that next time you beat me at Pinochle. You can't beat a good space poem. I think it's just fantastic. Perfect, if, we, if, we, if we were looking back in sort of 100 years and we were looking back on Jeff Cottrell's life and science fails to save us and all that's left behind of you is a book about your sort of poetic life and your work, what, what would maybe the title be? It would definitely be something quirky knowing you. So what, what would you what would you uh, leave behind in your little meta box that was to be saved? You know, I've often thought... For my uh, for my tombstone, my epitaph, mm. I always I always wanted he meant well <laughs> because you know I don't know something about my sometimes it's something about my lack of social skills. People get angry at me really easily sometimes. Sometimes because they're offended by my poems. Sometimes because I say something that they got offended by that was meant in a friendly way but they read it wrong so yeah i just he meant well at least give him that and maybe that could be the title of the biography too anything you would look back and tell your younger self oh so much um <laughs> i would go back to when i was in university and i was studying creative writing and they were telling me you suck you you you, you don't have what it takes to write novels you don't have what it takes to write fiction mm. i would tell my younger self don't listen to those bastards. Just do what you want. And even if you don't make it big, at least you'll be writing novels. Because, you know, I think about, you know, this is like my seventh or eighth attempt at a first novel. And I've always gotten stuck because I hear those voices from, you know, back when I was studying creative writing, telling me, no, you suck. We're trying to turn people into second rate Hemingways and second rate Michael Ondaatjes, and you'll never be that when they should have been trying to teach me how to be a first rate me. So like, I still hear that. And if I could talk to that Jeff, the little Jeff, then you know, maybe I would have gone on and written a whole bunch of novels by now. And they probably might not have been good and they might not have been popular, but at least I would have achieved that. And I would have been so much further along now. I definitely think imposter syndrome creeps in, doesn't it? With everyone, I, I get it still and the, the per, I've got this phrase that I think of all the time, which is only you can spread your wings and fly, you know, so yeah. it, it's so true. You've got to just go for it and be true and authentic to yourself. 
I think that's the key. And don't let anybody sort of um, take away what your path is meant to be. But let's finish. We're, we're getting close to time. Let's go one more poem and then uh, we, we will start to wrap up. But I would love to hear one more if you've got one at hand. Okay, so let's leave off the uh, angry and bitter stuff. And, <laughs> I mean, people tell me, you're, they miss the humor and they say, you're so bitter, Jeff. You're so angry. And they completely miss the humor, which drives me crazy. But this one had absolutely none of that. And this is new, I just wrote this last week, and it's my stab at a found poem. Now, uh, some as our listeners may or may not be familiar with the Twitter account, Kids Write Jokes, which uh, I'm kind of addicted to. It's basically, there's this website in the UK where they get joke submissions from children. And uh, the Twitter account publishes the rejects, and they're magical, like they're either just complete nonsense, or they're, they're, they, they try to do proper jokes and they completely mess them up. So here we go. Kids write jokes, a found poem. Hello, idiot. Is your refrigerator leaking? You know it is. You're so old, you broke in half. Question, what do you think I am talking about? Something that smells like an elephant's bum, looks like a ogre, and eats rubbish. Answer, you, ha ha. Imagine if a ham fell off the Eiffel Tower. My eyes flew out when I was eating a taco on the toilet. Why did he go to the toilet? Because he is foolish of the world. What's a fish with no eyes? Dead. There were two fish in a bowl, and one fish looked at the other and said, fish don't talk. How many fish? Because the sky. How about when there is a silly man? There was a guy who had problems. Every time he laughed, he can't breathe. His friend keeps telling him funny jokes without knowing about this. So the guy with problems is like, stop, I can't breathe. So he died. One, two, three, four, five. Once I caught a shark. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then it eats my whole body. I did not care at all. Doctor, doctor, I think I am a supermarket. Okay, well, I don't want to buy anything. Doctor, doctor, I hit my head. What do you want me to do, stupid? If spiders can't walk, they would be raisins. Did you know what a turkey likes to eat? Probably not turkey. Do you know the chicken who went to the city to buy a hat? How did the chicken survive? Because he ate himself for dinner. What do you get when you cross a T-Rex and a chicken? Nothing but death. How come a chicken didn't eat his sandwich? Because a monkey ate the sandwich. Why did the monkey go to school? Because monkeys don't know anything. Why do monkeys eat banana? because bananas are not afraid. Why did the banana eat himself? He had nothing. Why did the egg cross the road? Because it was ugly. Why did the frog get the bus to town? He is lazy. What do you call a cat what is broken? Stupid cat. What did the robot say to the centipede? Stop being a centipede. Why did the dragon went camping? What else is he supposed to do? What did the sheep say up a cold mountain? Why am I here? What did the jealous man say to the movie star? You stink, looser. What did Joker say to Batman? You're so stupid. What is the only one thing is Batman scared of? Bats and also the Joker. Why were cowboys invented? Because they're idiots. Who is the old man that have six eyes? It is you. Why did the skittle go bowling? because he is part of bowling. 
What is 70 million plus 22,874,928 plus 74,746 plus one? Nobody will ever know. A horse walks into a bar. The man says, are you an alcoholic? The horse disappears in a puff of dust and appears at Charing Cross. The girls riding the horse, they all talking and putting on makeup. Then they hated each other. Then they be friends and they going to sing and they singing and everyone is happy. That right there is why it's so important for kids just to keep going and, uh, and not suffer from the imposter syndrome. Yeah, rejections are tough, exactly. aren't they? Especially as a writer, we, we all get them and we, I've had yeah. a million over the years. And yeah, how do you pick yourself back up again and, and dust yourself off and sort of stay so positive? Well, in a way, I kind of cheat because I don't send my poetry out to be published that much. I, <laughs> I've been focused so much on the performance that it just doesn't occur to me most of the time. And uh, I started sending my short fiction out, actually. Again, like I said, I've been focusing more on fiction lately. And I've had a website in Toronto uh, publish a couple of my short stories. And I've joined Wattpad, which is also kind of cheating. But I, I post my works in progress on Wattpad, including the first six chapters of Hate Story. So I've gotten a little more confident about sending my stuff out. But the funny thing is, is I see it from both points of view because I've worked as an editor uh, for my day jobs in the past. I've edited for magazines and you get, you know, you get submissions all the time, like out of nowhere from random people. And so many of them, it's not even that they're bad ideas. It's just that they're not right for the magazine. So I see it from the editor's point of view too. And maybe that's what gives me a lack of confidence because I look at it from the point of view that I was like, yeah, I can see why they wouldn't want to publish it. And it has not, it's not always that it's necessarily not good. It's just that, you know, you can see from their point of view because I've been there, so. Well, I think you're an incredible spoken word artist and poet, and it's it's been really great meeting you on this online poetry scene from the other side of the world. I, I might finish with my one last question, and we'll we'll uh, we'll call it a wrap after that. But what amazing fact should I have asked you about, and I didn't know enough about you to call it out today? Oh, okay. We didn't really talk about it, but I'm a, I'm a huge uh, film buff, actually, uh, mm. most of the classic films. You might see, uh, I don't know if the visual is going to show, but uh, in the corner, there's my poster of uh, Truffaut's The 400 Blows, Les Quatre Cent Coups, um, which is like one of my five or six stream, uh, favorite films. In fact, I've been watch watching a lot of French New Wave lately. I've been watching mm. a lot of Godard. But right there behind the computer is my Vertigo poster and my Third Man poster. And I'm also a big Beatles fan hence the revolver poster behind me so which I, I shows up in every zoom of course so i guess that's how people know me now my son would love talking to you he's a i have a teenage son he he's uh, into every movie and classic he could talk to you all night as could i but we have to call it a day yes i've, I've loved this this has been great and uh, we'll have that conversation about uh, movies another time I, I hope exactly i'm sure hopefully in person when we can all eventually travel again and get back onto the live poetry scene but for today so. thank you thank you for joining the podcast and sharing your work yeah. uh, for our listeners and i hope to see you again soon on one of the slams thank you thank you kelly You've been listening to Wordsmith, 
The Poetry Podcast with Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. Thank you for joining us.